This house on Washington Street in New York doesn't look like a house. It's more like an industrial building. Comes right up to the sidewalk, red brick, steel window frames, and a grid of windows. It'd be considered a big house anywhere, but in New York, where people live in pretty small quarters. I mean, it's huge. My building, I think, has 14 apartments, and I think this looks twice as big as it, and it's just him and his family. I don't know. The him in this case is Noam Gottesman, a billionaire finance guy, an art collector. The guy telling me about him is a neighbor from around the corner, Eyal Levin. Not a billionaire. Father of two teenage boys who share a bedroom. He runs a jewelry business with his wife. There's one other important feature on this immense house that he wants me to see. Bright yellow letters, neat and tidy and dignified, on the bank of windows. Eyal reads. Signs, no parking, active driveway. Mm-hmm. But if, when you live here, everybody knows he's bluffing. It's not a no parking zone, he says, because there's no driveway. There's no garage. There's just a big door. But by pretending to have a driveway, what this man gets, he says, is the kind of real estate money cannot buy in New York. His own free parking space, right in front of his house. And parking. Parking is just beyond difficult in certain neighborhoods of New York. Like, people cry over parking. It's so frustrating. And finding a space in this neighborhood, Miguel says, You sometimes go make the rounds and rounds and rounds, and time passes. Sometimes it can take an hour. Sometimes more. Eyal says that when he first noticed Gottesman's signs telling people not to park there, he respected the moxie. Initially, it was very funny. I I actually chuckled, and I was like, well, this guy, you know, uh, good for him for for confiscating the parking lot. I mean, whenever I passed it, it was like, Kind of funny. Like, look what this guy did. But then one day, AI was driving around looking for parking himself. It's taking forever. And he sees the space in front of Gottesman's house. And he decides, okay, this will be the day he'll park there. Five, ten seconds after, there's a security guard or two of them that barge out of the property. They have cameras all over. So they see you when you park, and they run out. He says they told him you can't park here. And they pointed to the signs on the door. I was, like, laughing, and I said, listen, guys, I'm a neighbor. I know what you're doing here. I I personally don't care, but I'm allowed to park here. And then they start making threats. You will get towed. Why are you being so difficult? Al describes himself as somebody who's generally pretty mellow. And the first time he tried to park there, he decided it wasn't worth arguing about and pulled out. But the next time he needed a place to park, he pulled into the space again. Again, the tough guys showed up. And this time, I yelled it out enough. He stood his ground. I was like, why am I being bullied when I know for a fact that I'm allowed to park there and that the signs are basically fake? So he left his car there. He parked. Did that maybe a half dozen times, he says. Then one day, he's taking his son to school, walks by the parking space, and he realizes his car's gone. They had him towed. Eyal believes the guards must have found a cop who'd read a ticket and then called for the tow truck. The ticket later got thrown out. But to get his car back, Eyal still had the hassle of riding the subway out to the tow lot. It was in part of Queens called Massbeth. There was a subway ride and a 20-minute walk, he says. He also had to pay $201 to get the car back. 
I mean, at the time I was enraged. It's, it's ludicrous, it's my car, it's public space. I don't care how much money you have, I'm still allowed to park on the street. So, the neighbor had cameras, guards, money, and A.L. thought cops, they could talk into writing tickets or something that is not illegal. But A.L. had some moves, too. Sent the story to the tabloids. Talked to reporters. And I wake up in the morning, and I see it online, and I'm like, whoa. Like, it was the whole front page. And what was the headline again? Uh... We're in his apartment for this part of the conversation, and he heads over to a cardboard box behind his couch next to a bin of soccer and basketballs, rustles through some stuff, and pulls out three different days of the New York Daily News where this story is the front page. You can't buy that kind of real estate in New York either. The front pages of the New York tabloids are like the Madison Square Garden of journalism, usually reserved for the top acts. Cheating celebrities, no-good Nick Mayers, headless bodies in topless bars, A-Rod. So all over the first page, and they got a great headline, I think. Total jerk. And they spell total, T-O-W-T-A-L. Right. Get it? Toe, like they towed his car. He's interviewed for radio and TV. There are follow-up stories. The mayor's office, because hogging a parking space like this is shameful. The Department of Buildings sends out an inspector. And the billionaire Gottesman is eventually told that if he wants to call this a driveway, he needs to install a proper garage door. They all gets why the story had such legs. It's got something for everybody. A rich guy, a mansion, uh, a car being towed, how the rich always get away with it. It's David versus Goliath. Uh, yeah. And I'm David. Nice to meet you. Like for the next few days, whenever, wherever I walk, I get stopped by neighbors. He learns that other people in the neighborhood have noticed the billionaire in his parking space. He becomes a magnet for their stories about run-ins with the neighbor's security guards. In AL's building, when they had their annual meeting, there were people he's known for 10 years. And I got like a applause there. They were like, how did you do it? And... and one older neighbor was like, I've been trying to fight them for years because I was so upset about it. He doesn't even have a car, but just, you know, whenever he passes it, he was like getting upset about it. After talking to Ayal, I reached out to Noam Gottesman's spokesperson. Noam Gottesman agreed to talk to me, though he didn't want me to record. When we got on the phone, he told me he totally understood why people got so upset at Ayal's story. But he said Ayal is wrong about the most basic fact in the story. Ayal thinks it's legal to park in that space. And he thinks he only got a ticket because he was targeted by Noam's security guards. Noam Gottesman said that nobody can park there. That when he built his house, the curb was already cut low for a driveway. Had been that way for decades, and he left it that way. And the Department of Buildings approved it as a loading bay and driveway. And he says they do load and unload stuff into his house through a massive door there. Like I said, he's a big art collector. Because it is approved by the city for this purpose, Noam said. It is not legal to park there. Same as other driveways and loading bays in the neighborhood. He says other cars have gotten tickets there. And in fact, he doesn't park there in front of his own home because he's gotten a ticket there. That was so many years ago, unlike Ayal, he didn't have a copy he could show me. 
He says he pays to park in a garage where he finds a parking space and then walks home like all the non-billionaires in the neighborhood do. I'm paraphrasing here. He didn't actually call anybody a non-billionaire in our conversation. But checking into it, I learned, he's right. The space in front of Noam's house was, in fact, not a legal parking space. Eyal's ticket was legit. I will note, tickets seem very rare for that spot. The police told us they haven't issued one this whole year. And Noam says he's never heard of anybody else being towed from that spot besides Eyal. So if I had to guess, I would guess that after a half dozen arguments with Eyal, Noam's security guards were fed up with him and called over a friendly cop to write a ticket and called the towing company. When I suggested this to Noam, he categorically denied it. Said he did not arrange for that to happen, that he asked his security guards. They said they didn't do it either. Though the towing company did tell the Daily News that someone phoned from Noam's house to ask for Eyal's car to be towed. When I later asked Noam's spokesperson why they would say that, it is not true. She said she had no idea. Eyal, meanwhile, doesn't buy it. Says there's no way he would have been towed without Noam's guards making it happen. Says the city shouldn't have approved this as a driveway in the first place. Because it's not really a driveway in any normal sense of the word. But even though he thinks he's in the right. I didn't park again in that spot since it happened. I'm sometimes tempted when I, and then I'm like, I don't want to go to Maspeth again. And this is where the, you know, the bullying sometimes works. Well, today on our show, one man's bullying is another man's simple adherence to New York parking law. It's hard being neighbors when things get angry or ugly or seem unfair. It's like everybody is just stuck with each other. You know, it's hard to move away. Moving away is for quitters. Today we have a story of a very different group of neighbors in a very different place. A man moves in who breaks all kinds of rules, and the neighbors have to figure out what to do about it. And nobody backs down. I'm WBZ Chicago. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. One, home, home near the range. So what you're about to hear uh, takes place not in a city, but in a small town in Vermont, Paulette, Vermont. Think rolling green hills, red barns, and pretty peaceful until a stranger comes to town, buys up some land. The neighbors aren't exactly sure what to make of this guy. And then problems start. And things escalate in a pretty serious and intense way, partly because this new guy, not only does he not play by the rules... In fact, he seems to feed off breaking them. This story is going to be the rest of our show today. Reporter Mike Giglio tells what happened. It all started with a gate. A man named Daniel Bonnier bought a wooded 30-acre property between some farmland and a slate quarry back in 2013. The neighbors didn't see much of him for a while. They noticed construction vehicles rumbling up and down the road, and they figured he was building a house. Mandy Hewlett and her husband Rich own a farm next to Daniel's property. Here's Mandy. A good friend of ours used to own that property, and he sold the property to him. And the very first time we met him, he came down to the farm, and he was actually, he was okay. Um, But the next thing we knew, it was like two weeks later, um, he was 
erecting a gate on our property. Daniel's land is actually surrounded by other people's property. It's kind of like an island. So in order to access it, he has the right to cross the Hewlett's land. There's a long driveway. Daniel put a gate at his end of it, but his gate was on the Hewlett's property. Mandy and Rich are in their 40s. They have two kids. They own a lot of farmland and a trucking company. Rich grew up there. His family's been in the area since before the Civil War. So Rich approached him and said, you do know that you put your gate, like, I don't know, 10 feet onto our property. And he's like, I'll put my gate wherever I want to put my gate. And Rich said, well, in, in Vermont, we, you know, we put our gate on our own property or, like, on the property line, not on somebody else's property. And, you know, you have, I think he gave him two or three weeks to remove it. And if you don't, I'm going to come remove it. And he's like, you're never going get to get that out of the ground. So he gave him, like, two or three weeks and... He didn't move it, so Rich went up with the payloader and um, brought a witness with him as well and just picked it up off out of the ground and tossed it onto his property, back onto his own property. (laughs) So things were off to a bad start. Daniel was a newcomer to the area. He was from upstate New York, but other than that, he was guarded about his background. He told one neighbor he'd been in the Army. Then there was a rumor around town that he'd been a Navy SEAL or federal agent or something. It wasn't clear. And just a word about the place he'd moved to, this part of Paulette. It's a bit isolated, up on a hill. There are about a dozen households all spread out along a couple of roads. There are the Hewlett's, John Davis, a Vietnam vet, and his wife Val. Then down the hill is Beth Duquette, a former librarian, and her husband Ray. Paul and Michelle Talander are grandparents who moved to the area about 10 years ago. People are pretty private here, but they help each other out. This is Ray and Michelle, who lives one house down from him. Paul and Michelle moved in next door to me. I love this story. I told him. I know what he's going to say. If you ever have an emergency, call me first, then call 911, because the cops won't show up. Yeah. But I will. And that's the way we roll around here. Most of them came here for the landscape and the quiet. And then, one day... The woods erupted with gunfire. Hundreds and hundreds of rounds. This is Beth Moser-Duquette, the former librarian. I mean, it was just shooting, like, on a daily basis, like, I want to point out, Paula is not a gun-shy town. Beth told me that gunfire is the sound of Vermont. She's a longtime NRA member. The area is mixed politically. Some of the neighbors voted for Trump, others went for Biden, But none of them has a problem with firearms. Farmers have their varmint guns, and hunters have their rifles, and no one bats an eye at a neighbor doing some practice with an AR-15. This was different. We didn't know what was going on. We're like, what? It sounds like Vietnam. This is Michelle Talander, the grandmother who lives with her husband, Paul. Here in Vermont, you expect to hear somebody out there plunking away at their targets, getting ready for turkey season or hunting season, or or just keeping their their firearms in tune. We do that. That's expected. But not what we heard. That was totally out of the zone. Um, Did you you try to approach him at that point? No, at that point, I was too afraid to approach anybody that was firing that much weaponry. Because that's just not, that's not normal, certainly for this area. Um, I don't think I would want to approach anybody that was firing off, you know, a thousand rounds. That's scary. 
Daniel had opened up a gun range. John Davis, the Vietnam vet, was tipped off about it by a friend. John got in his truck and drove up and down the hill, knocking on doors to alert everyone. He told me it was like Paul Revere's ride. Mandy Hewlett and another neighbor walked the property line around Daniel's place. They peered through the trees and saw some silhouette targets and dirt berms. Mandy worried that someone would end up shooting towards the road. And the trajectory of those bullets is like actually right to my brother-in-law's house and then right to the school, right over the hill. The neighbors did not want a shooting range in their backyard. Daniel had filed for a permit, not to open a shooting range, but for what he called a school, apparently where he would do classroom firearms instruction. In order to build a school on his property, Daniel needed permission to widen his driveway through the neighbor's land. So he asked the Hewlett's if they would give him the extra space. The Hewlett said no. His neighbors on the other side said no as well. Daniel's permit application for a school was denied. But he had already put up the building, and he just kept going. He also didn't have the right permit to operate a shooting range on his land, but of course he was doing that too. What he was developing was a sprawling facility, the kind that military contractors or law enforcement or a self-styled militia might use. He called it Slate Ridge. I reached out to Daniel. He didn't want to be interviewed. But he lays the whole thing out in this YouTube video. Slate Ridge is 100% predicated on the practitioner model. Gunfighters, professionals that use the firearm as a tool in the line of their employment. Daniel is six feet tall and stout with a bushy beard. That's how he talks. Lots of jargon. The video is shot by a dude named Adam McLean, who associates himself with the Boogaloo Boys, an armed movement that calls for civil war. His Twitter handle is Bujahideen. So this is, this is range one. This is, this is what started uh, Slate Ridge, right? I built this first, and I, you know, continued to proceed, uh, you know, to proceed on my dream. He shows Adam the school and a surprisingly fancy bunkhouse and two shooting ranges, one with a wraparound berm that's intended to let people fire in multiple directions to more closely mirror real-life combat. There's a spot where people can practice entering and clearing a building and a place where they could detonate explosives. After the tour, Daniel and Adam sit down for an interview. So, uh, so you were a private contractor. Is uh, uh, how long were you a private contractor for? For several years. For several years. Several years. Yes. Okay. In the video, Daniel is wearing green military-style cargo pants and green wraparound shades. He tells Adam the origin story of Slate Ridge. He says the idea came to him on his first overseas deployment as a private military contractor. You know, I remember that day like it was just yesterday. I bumped up with about 12 guys that I had no idea who they were. I didn't know much about them. You know, you know I, I tried out with these guys. I, I, I made it on the team. And then we get, we get there, right? Mm-hmm. We're out of the United States of America and we're, we're in it. And that night when we hit our bunks, I watched with all due respect, because some of those guys I've become very good friends with, some of those guys are, are my battle buddies now, mm-hmm. and some of those guys, you know, um, I would bleed for them. But a lot of them turned into a totally different person. <clears throat> Here we had men crying, shivering, and second-guessing themselves. And I sat there, and I watched these men, and I said, wow, what did I get myself into? The problem was they weren't properly trained. So he decided to start his own training facility. He tells Adam he put $1.6 million of his own money into building the place. To Daniel, Slate Bridge is more than the shooting range. It's a place for people who define themselves by owning guns. 
he refers to himself as a professional gunfighter. You know, in the military, we had the three M's. The mission, the men, and me. I'm always at the last. I'm an army guy, he tells Adam. Daniel talks about his service a lot. At one town meeting, where he made his case for the school building, he described himself as a veteran who's passionate about guns. He paints his work as a private contractor in patriotic terms. In court, he tells a state judge. Okay, you know, the last thing I'd like to add is that um, within 30 days, I will be out of the country. Okay, so, let me ask you this, how long have you gone for? I, I'm not sure. I'm waiting for the deployment orders to come in. It may be a few months. Okay, all right. Well, please, please be safe in those travels, okay? And thank, okay, thank, thank you. you. And thank you for your service, sir. The neighbors wondered if even the most basic part of his biography, that he'd been in the military, was a lie. John Davis, the Vietnam vet, wasn't sure he bought it. If you're a veteran, there's nothing more disreputable than somebody claims to be something he isn't. And uh, I have no use for people that go around and act like they're something they aren't. After Slate Ridge opened at the end of 2017, his Facebook page racked up a few thousand followers. Daniel started referring to them as the Slate Ridge family. He hosted classes on shooting and tactical training and field first aid. The neighbors would see strangers driving up and down their shared dirt road. Sometimes, the shooting would go on all weekend. The neighbors hadn't been all that close before this started, just friendly in that small town kind of way. But the conflict with Daniel brought them together. They started meeting in John Davis's workshop. Sometimes a couple dozen people would show up. Their weapon of choice was as American as the Winchester rifle. Zoning laws. Those most basic rules for how neighbors are going to live next to one another. This area was zoned residential and agricultural. Daniel went back to the town and argued for a variance in the zoning laws so he could finally get a permit for the school building. 46 people signed a petition opposing this. They showed up at the town meeting in force. Here's Michelle. You know, I thought maybe the town would step in and would would go to a couple of select board meetings. We thought for sure it would be brought into control, I'd say within six months. There's no recording of the meeting where Daniel asked for the zoning variance, but there's official minutes. This kind of captures the feeling of it. Quote, Gary Haddocka addressed the board as an abutting landowner and interested party. Mr. Haddocka explained that as an owner of a horse stable, they have a lot to lose that they do not want to live through a war, and that they were there first. He expressed that he wishes to stay on their property and is entitled to peace and quiet. But the town zoning board decided in Daniel's favor. Said he was right. He could have his zoning variance for the school building. The neighbors appealed. For the next few years, he'd apply for permits. They'd try to stop him. Sometimes they won. Sometimes he won, and they'd appeal to the town or the state court. Eventually, the town of Paulette took the neighbor's side and filed a case against Daniel, too, for violating its zoning laws. But this kind of thing can move really slowly. Beth, the former librarian, knew the state's environmental laws and looked for a way to use them against Daniel. She peered into his property from a neighbor's yard one day and noticed what looked like wetlands. Those are often protected in Vermont, which is no small thing, because the state can crack down on people for even small-seeming environmental problems, like manure. You know, we're, we're farmers, so we're allowed to spread manure. From April 15th, we start to spread our manure. And December 15th is our cutoff. December 16th comes along, and you spread, 
agency of natural resources would be so quick here, like on a fly on, you know what, and we'd be fined. That's an environmentalist. She was on a local conservation board at the time. She contacted the state's Department of Agriculture and the Natural Resources Board, trying to get someone to investigate. There was no quick response. Nobody stepped in to stop Daniel. And it was all falling upon deaf ears. Who do we go to? Who do we tell? Who do we talk to? Daniel fought back. And not just in the town hall and the courts. In the winter of 2019, the neighbors got holiday cards with the Slate Ridge logo printed on them. Each one had a handwritten message. Here's Michelle Talander, the grandmother, and John Davis, the Paul Revere guy. Yeah, every all of us in the neighborhood got one, and some of them were pretty... pretty can I read mine? <laughs> yes, you can. I got together with a group of these neighbors on Beth's front lawn. She set out a table with muffins and Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Let me see, there's mine. Some of them are pretty filthy, so there's some I'm not going to read, but... Um, there you go, John. Oh, yeah, this is Mr. and Mrs. Davis in our address, a.k.a. Davis Trash. From all of us at Slate Ridge, we wanted to wish you two miserable souls a wonderful holiday season. People hate you two inbreds. We are so fortunate you are our neighbors. Please feel free to move away because no one likes alcoholics. Because we, you know, we have a front porch and in the summer after, at the end of the day, we'll sit out there and have a beer. But uh, this is, I mean, this is just typical. Yeah. They're all like this. Especially after We're all inbreds. We're all, oh, uh... this... Did you want me to read yours? Absolutely. Oh, this is disgusting. The cards are in these binders. The neighbors brought them to the meeting. In this huge plastic bin, the kind you'd store your old clothes in. They're each labeled, carefully, with a label maker. There's Paulette zoning regulations and Slate Ridge Facebook postings and... Odds and ends slash unfinished business. This was the moment I realized how much the conflict with Daniel had taken over the neighbors' lives. There's maybe 20 of these binders. And inside are all the pieces of information that the neighbors have spent the last few years obsessively documenting about Daniel and Slate Ridge. Uh, Michelle, what's, what's it say on the side of this binder here? So, threats, postal cards, uh, and then uh, also some stalking problems here. Okay. But all Can, the threats, everything, we try to keep it compiled. The, I asked the neighbors where they keep the binders, the and they wouldn't tell me. They'd only say it was a remote, locked facility. Here's Paul, describing a Facebook post they've gotten one of the binders. It was on the Slate Ridge page. He put a, a picture of our house, and he captioned it, any day above ground is a, is a good day. These people will be leaving soon. Yep. How did you feel when that happened? Unsafe. And this is John Davis again. John and his wife moved to Paulette 43 years ago, in large part because his PTSD was so bad when he came back from Vietnam. He wanted the quiet. My wife and I were down and uh, visiting my sister for about three days, and he posted on his website that the Davises are away. Yeah. And then he, some of his disciples posted, oh, really, they're away. So we cut our visit short. Because Last fall... The Slate Ridge Facebook account posted a photo of an SUV and said they were looking for one like it to use for something called vehicle assault class, where the vehicle will be shot and then blown up. The SUV in the post was the exact same make, model, and color as an SUV the Hewlett's daughter had recently bought. Another time, the account posted a video. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a 9mm full metal jacket 
115 grain bullet. While Daniel narrates, the video shows a close-up of a bronze bullet, then pans to the driver's side of a silver car. That went through this door, through the car. The door has been shot through multiple times, right where someone has written the words R. Hewlett Trucking on it. That's the name of one of the businesses the Hewlett's own. So if you think that you can hide in your car and be safe behind the door from a bullet, you're wrong. Mandy Hewlett eventually got a no-stalking order against Daniel, and the Slate Ridge Facebook page is down now. But the neighbors say it was not just threats, but accusations, smears, and that Slate Ridge supporters would then like and comment on the posts. It's just to threaten. It's idle threats, and it's, it's just, once again, psychological it's warfare. Idle unless one of his knuckleheads that's been going up there takes it a different way and takes it to another level. Yes. They worried about Daniel's supporters. A few of the people training at Slate Ridge suggested online that they were affiliated with national militant groups like the Three Percenters, or a small local outfit with the grandiose name of the Vermont State Militia. Some of the neighbors did go to the police. But none of the things that Daniel and his supporters were doing seemed likely to bring criminal charges. It can be really hard to prosecute threats like these, unless they're very specific. Daniel didn't just go after the neighbors. He made it sound like the town itself was conspiring against him. They were all in league with the Hewlett's, who he saw as his main opposition. Here he is at one town meeting, accusing the board of treating him unfairly. I believe Mr. Bob Jones has a conflict of interest and has suppressed my rights and my existence in this community on three facts. Daniel points out that Jones, a board member, has worked for the trucking company owned by the Hewlett family. Then he pivots to a different and very surprising attack. Furthermore, furthermore, this man has attended a Klan meeting by the group. The meeting he's talking about is one of the ones the neighbors held to strategize about shutting down Daniel and Slate Ridge. But Daniel is calling it a Klan meeting, as in the Ku Klux Klan. Like, he's saying the neighbors are the KKK. This is part of a long-running and completely unsubstantiated claim of his, that Paulet is somehow run by white supremacists. You think it's funny? You think it's funny? And also had proceeded when the Hewlett family took my gate down on my property. How is that legal for him to be here and to vote and not recuse and not have a misconduct? Mr. Cleveland, you laugh too. The first six months of this opposition here, your son Kenneth was dating a Hewlett. How can we not believe she didn't tell your son to tell you rhetoric to vote against me or diminish or sequester my rights in this community? You he went was, to a Klan meeting, too. I didn't go to any Klan meeting, let me tell you. The meeting you went to, whatever the verbiage is, you were not supposed to be there. It's as simple as that. I believe I went to the very first meeting they had, and that was to collect information. Okay, you're not supposed which to. Which I did. Right, you, you're not supposed to be doing that. Okay, and I, furthermore, I don't think my, anyhow, Listen, I don't think my I don't think you need to drag my son into we're it. Not your son, but it's not ethical. You need to recuse yourself. You cannot allow these degenerates to start making things against me in this town, and then you vote on it. I think I think I think I think I think I think this is before this gets out of control. It's, get out of control. I I, it's already it. is no. as far as I'm concerned. Daniel ramped up his attacks in the town. One post on the Slate Ridge Facebook page included a picture of Paulette's town hall and said, quote, No alarm. 
no security camera, single pane windows, no deadbolts, 30 to 40 minutes police response time, dead zone for all cell service, no safe room. People wrote in the comments that it was a soft target and noted the women on staff often worked late. Another post urged supporters to assemble at a town meeting with weapons and trauma kits, though none of them actually showed up. There were other problems too. In 2018, Daniel was banned from Pace University, where he'd been studying for a master's degree in Homeland Security. He'd allegedly sent a dean death threats over text message. That led to a judge's order suspending his pistol permit in New York and requiring Daniel to surrender his firearms. When police searched his house, they found a handgun, which led prosecutors in New York to charge him with two felonies for criminal possession. Those are not resolved yet. According to a prosecutor, the majority of Daniel's pistols were transferred out of state, presumably to Vermont. Up on the hill in Paulette, the conflict was threatening the spiral. A sign posted on Daniel's property read, Trespass here, die here. One night, two boys were bow hunting on the Hewlett's property. Here's what happened next, according to allegations made to police. They shot a deer and tracked it to Daniel's land. As they approached, Daniel came down and threatened them. One boy called his dad. Things escalated. When Daniel asked them to identify themselves, they refused. And then Daniel said, Okay, you want to play that game? I'll shoot you. Nobody got hurt in the end. Daniel disputed that he threatened anyone. No charges were filed. Coming up, reporter Mike Giglio looks into Daniel's background to try to figure out who Daniel really is and just how worried the neighbors should be. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, Don't You Be My Neighbor. We're devoting most of the hour today to the story of Paulette, Vermont, and what happened when one new person moved in. In this next part of the story, reporter Mike Giglio tries to answer the questions that lots of people in town had about their new neighbor. Here's Mike. I started writing about militia groups and civil violence last year. Ever since, I've been getting emails from people who were afraid of their neighbors. There was a Tennessee woman who suspected that hers were getting ready for, quote, a bloodbath. A Michigan man who asked me if he should report a high school friend to authorities because of his Facebook posts. People wanted me to help them figure out how dangerous was their neighbor. That was how I heard about Slate Ridge and Daniel. Someone who lives near Paulette sent me a message asking if I might want to investigate. You can drive yourself crazy these days, wondering if everyone threatening violence is serious or only trolling. When I was interviewing people in militia groups last year, for example, I often had the feeling that it was all just posturing, that all their talk about civil violence was just a mask for other anxieties. Then some people affiliated with these groups, according to the FBI at least, took part in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. People can seem like they're not really serious, until they are. Daniel Bonnier's neighbors don't know how scared they should be of him. Like how Mandy Hewlett said in one moment that he's probably just full of hot air but also has that no-stalking order against him. And she wrote a Facebook post saying she wanted people to know about Daniel's threats in case anything ever happened to her. And for all the research into Daniel, in the end, neighbors really don't know that much about his background. I spoke on the phone with him a couple times, but he wouldn't let me record him. And he was evasive about almost every question I asked. 
I spoke to the head of public safety in Vermont, the major from the state police who was their point person for Daniel, and someone from the Vermont Intelligence Center, an agency that coordinates between local and federal law enforcement. I even sent his YouTube video with Adam, the Boogaloo guy, to a recently retired agent from the FBI. But in the end, the person who knew the most about Daniel was his ex-wife, Gina Mahar Daniels. They met in 1992, when she was 16 and he was 19. At our local mall, there's a pizzeria called Roman Delight, and um, Dan was the pizza man there. He, you said pizza man. You mean, what, what was his job? Um, literally the pizza man. He was the guy that was making the pies. Gina told me she and Daniel both grew up in upstate New York. He had half-siblings he didn't really talk about. He was close with his dad, who died before they met. Daniel eventually quit his job at the pizza shop and enrolled at the Culinary Institute of America. But he dropped out right before he finished. He had a job running restaurants for a bit. Gina got pregnant, and soon after, Daniel decided to join the Army. And so I thought that was a great idea. Good. You know, that's, that's good. We're kind of setting ourselves up. We're a young family. You know, um, good idea. Uh, so he gets sworn in. He leaves for basic training um, and calls me like a few days in to let me know that they found cysts on his neck and that he was going to be coming home with a medical discharge. So pretty much two weeks to the day that I dropped him off at the airport, I was picking him up again uh, because he had been discharged from the Army uh, for supposedly these cysts that he never, like, did anything about. Um, supposedly a medical discharge. Um, I honestly don't know if that was the truth or if that was not the truth, but um, he was not in the Army. The National Personnel Records Center confirmed that Daniel's time in the Army lasted all of two weeks. What was it that made him want to join the military? Honestly, it was like security, just strictly financial security. Like, not because he had any sort of like calling to do so or sense of duty or nothing like that. Literally just like, oh, they'll provide us with a house to live in. <laughs> Money, security, health insurance, that sort of thing. Was he patriotic at all, as you remember? Um, not particularly, no. In talking with people close to Daniel, I got the sense that he didn't believe in anything very strongly. He's not an ideologue. He's not really a militia type. Those guys will go on for hours about the Constitution. But he does like to present himself as someone with a mysterious past, maybe even a dangerous one. From the time he met Gina at the pizza shop, she told me, he would suggest that he was connected with the mafia. Like when John Gotti died in 2002. Daniel said he was distraught, that he had to go to the funeral. She says he didn't go. And then there's their son. I'm Gumbrati Luciano Bagne. Um, I know you can't see me, but I'm doing the Italian hand. You know, you put all your fingers together, pointing at the sky. You know, the, I find that that helps people with my name. But uh, yeah, Gumbrati Luciano Bagne. If you're trying to remember what movie the name Gumbrati is from, where you've heard it before, you haven't. There's only one Gumbrati. Is it like a? Is it always been like a point of like discussion with people? Like, oh yeah. Um, well, I just tell them my dad made it up. I, I actually, I, I tell them, I say, hi, my name is Gumbrati Banya. And they go, oh, Gumbrati. I said, yeah, it's my real name. It's a fake name, but it's, it's, a, it's my name. <laughs> like, you know, it's not a real name. I'm the only one, but it's my name, you know. When I was pregnant, we were talking about names. And he was like, oh, you know, I want to name him, you know, something strong. And, you know, uh, I want to name him Gumbrati. And I'm like, oh, God, no, absolutely not. 
like, seriously, that's horrendous. We're not going to name him that. He's like, no, 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 listen, listen, you know, that was somebody from my past and, you know, somebody I can't really talk about it, but somebody who was like, you know, really important to me. He was kind of like a father figure. And so I acquiesced at that point. I'm like, all right, fine. You know, this is a namesake. This is something that's really important to you. Fine. And, you know, later on in years, it was like came up in conversation, you know, like I think I think someone was asking us together and and then he was like, oh, no, no, I made that up. I was like, are you serious? You made that up. You told me that was oh, no, 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 no. And yeah, it's like it's a cool name. I just needed you to be on board like you. mother. Yeah, I was not happy. What was the mafia thing like kind of like was it important to his presentation? You know, it was, honestly. I mean, he he needs to be the toughest guy in the room. After he was discharged from the Army, Daniel eventually started a landscaping business. He called it Tutiano Brigante Excavation. Also fake words. He had a knack for landscaping. I actually found an old article about him winning an award for Stonewall Preservation. But his record includes at least a dozen court cases, People he owed money to who he never paid, a car repossession, a mortgage default. In 2006, he pled guilty to making a fake workman's comp claim. The landscaping business filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Gina said Daniel was abusive. She said he hit her multiple times. She said she didn't file police reports about it, but told her therapist and her best friend, who both confirmed this. Once they were arguing in the car, and Daniel reached over and bashed her head against the window. Rambrati was there. He says he remembers it. And then there were periods when things would be okay. It could be hard for even his own family to know what to make of him. Daniel and Gambrati didn't speak for several years. They reconnected when Gambrati was 18. Daniel had an entirely new persona. He was just different. He had a different um, way of carrying himself. He seemed you know, more military lifestyle than he was like, you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm executive protection security, you know, and I asked him to explain it. And I was like, so like you're a security guard or like a, like a contractor. And he was like the, the, the exact words, this is cause it's such a stupid statement. I, I remember it. He says, oh, I, I escorted essential and non-essential personnel through the theater of battle. Um, and I was like, oh, oh okay, cool. And then like, I remember him saying it to, I remember him saying it to other people. As for Daniel's claim that he's a private military contractor, he did start a security company called Garm Dynamics in 2014 with a guy named Ian Spurgeon, a former officer in the Swedish military. The two of them met at an executive protection training course in Denmark. Ian said at the training, Daniel really impressed him. He said it looked like he had real experience. Did he say he had, like, what any details of the work? Like, had it been overseas? Had it been in high-stress environments? Like, anything like that? Yeah, he said he had uh, overseas contracts and um, um, uh, with the U.S. government and also with the private sector. Um, and again, uh, fr- from my background, I, I'm I'm prone not to a- ask questions because really, it's if if it's not my need to know, then I really don't a- ask any questions. The idea was that Garm Dynamics would do security contracting and train people in military tactics. The Garm website had seals from the Department of Homeland Security and other government agencies on it, but Ian told me that they never actually worked for any of them. He said Daniel had assured him it was okay to use the logos. The website also said the company was, quote, established and facilitated by elite military and government personnel. 
Was there anyone else that was like elite military and government personnel besides you? Nah, we, we there was only the two of us, but uh, I don't know how we like uh, how we add that. But but again, you know how we're oh. uh, you know I- I- enhancing the marketability of the of the company. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you said you have a multi, you have multifaceted teams of industry experts, forensic analysts, intelligence experts, on the ground sources provide intelligence and risk assessment. Is that also just like marketing, basically? Uh, yeah. Okay. And then there's like a picture of like, uh, this is one thing I've, there's like a picture of these dudes in like a helicopter and their faces are blurred out. Yeah, I, I, that's like a stock photo, I think it is. Ian said Garm never got any contracts, never did any trainings, at least when he was there. Eventually, Daniel seemed to be getting sucked more and more into his problems up in Vermont, and the company died. Daniel also registered a second company that is still active. But I could find only one person on LinkedIn who said he'd worked there. And when I messaged him about this, he deleted it from his profile. It's hard to say for sure if Daniel ever did work as a private military contractor. Or, if he did, whether it really entailed dodging bullets in Iraq, as he once claimed to me. You can't check that kind of thing through public records requests. And people who do private contractor work also usually have to sign non-disclosure agreements. The other work Daniel says he's done is executive protection, which is the business of guarding the rich and famous. We were able to confirm one aspect of this. Daniel worked for a time on a detail protecting Ben Shapiro, a conservative commentator, though he was ultimately fired from that job. I spoke with a few people who consider themselves part of the Slate Ridge family. They see a totally different version of Daniel than the neighbors do. Samantha Shumway is one of the co-founders of the Vermont State Militia. She says they're survivalists. They're a pretty small group, about 10 members. They train once a month. She's 32, has four kids, who call Daniel Uncle Daniel. She told me he's not dangerous at all. He's just someone who wants to share his knowledge about guns. He taught them all firearm safety. She and the other militia members drive about two hours to get to Slate Ridge, even though there are much closer ranges, because the facility is so nice and because Daniel is so warm and welcoming. She doesn't believe the neighbors are really as scared as they say. She thinks they're exaggerating their fears because they don't want a noisy shooting range in their neighborhood and they're afraid of change. They haven't even met us, she told me. She did think the Facebook threats were over the line. After the Hewlett trucking video, she and some others in the Slate Ridge family told Daniel he needed to stop. It was all part of what she called a battle between neighbors, which she didn't see how it could end at this point. But the thing she was more worried about was the government taking Daniel's land. It's a piece of him, she told me. In any community, there are basic rules and laws we agree to live by. It's how we're able to coexist. But in Paulette, Daniel was clearly not participating in all that. And the state agencies that are meant to enforce those rules don't seem to be able to do anything about it. It's like he's managed to outmaneuver them, simply by creating chaos. For instance, with the state's Natural Resources Board, Daniel might be in violation of a Vermont land use law, but they need to prove that he's running a business. He says he's not, that everything at Slate Ridge is free. And so far the Natural Resources Board hasn't been able to prove otherwise. And take those cases in New York. One of them is a restraining order against him, which required him to surrender his firearms. 
I asked law enforcement authorities in Vermont about this. Could they enforce New York's order? Go and seize his guns? They said yes, they could. But here's the irony. Even though the neighbors have been hearing all that shooting for so long, even though Daniel talks about all the weapons he has, there's no hard proof that he currently has any in his possession. If you look at his Facebook posts, photos, videos, he never appears with a gun. For a while now, some of the neighbors have had this feeling that's new to them, that the system is failing them, that the protection that they thought it provided isn't actually there. I think this can create a special kind of anxiety, and it's led them to take things into their own hands. This is my Kevlar vest. So this is, this is underneath your bedroom window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beth showed me around her house. With no she and Ray have weapons hidden everywhere, just in case. This is my favorite weapon. You got a shotgun leaned against the windowsill. And this is my 243. Can you describe it to me? My beautiful camouflage 243 I bought on a whim because it was pretty. It's got a high-powered scope. It's camouflage pretty pink because I'm a girl. And I've got one, two, three, four, five clips of 243 bullets that are already locked and loaded. Two years ago, I would have never... It only takes one bullet to kill a deer. Why do you think I have all these? To protect my family. And these are my family. My neighbors are my family. So Banye has family. We have family, too. Are there other, like, you know, ammo and gun spots in the house mm-hmm. tactically placed? Well, you can see a couple over there. I spy with my little eye. Oh, wow. Is this behind the bedroom door? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you saw the 3030 in the bathroom. I did not. I guess I wasn't being <laughs> observant. I'm starting uh, to lose count of how many guns she showed me. It, it's great. So, but you really, you have like a gun, it seems. I think you forgot some of them, but they're like, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, there's one just like, they're like Easter eggs all over the house. <laughs> yes. And that happens to be my favorite holiday, so that's okay. Why in the bathroom? Well, what if? I want to get caught off guard, you know? I'm just saying. And okay. it's near the back door. Okay. So if you had to run in and grab one, you know, yeah. The Talander's comfortable country home has a warped Norman Rockwell feel now. Yeah, so this is it. They've stockpiled weapons around their house, too. There's a loaded handgun in the cookie cabinet. And then he's got his... The first thing Paul does every morning is search for new posts from Slate Ridge. When the Talanders moved to Paul a decade ago, they planned a retirement of gardening and enjoying the views. Instead, Michelle looks out her kitchen window and imagines Daniel or his supporters creeping through the woods, lying down in a hedgerow, and aiming their guns into the house. You know, his Facebook has posted pictures of his um, cronies with their ARs and their camo and all that, um, walking through the woods. But do you imagine, like, someone coming down the road here, like where it's so close? Or like... Nah. No, I, I think they would come through the, the field. So you're pointing out the back window here. Yeah, back window. Well, I think they'd I think they'd come through the field to avoid uh, being seen. There's a fair amount of traffic on this road. You can come up that back, um, that by the creek there, where the, where the land drops away. Walk right up and just lay down in that hedgerow. And here we are. This is where we spend most of our time. Yeah, that's what we live with now. You know, it's, uh, I don't know how many times I've come to this sink, looked out this window, pulled the blinds and said, if, he's, if someone's going to shoot me, they're going to shoot me. We're, you know, we're older now. So we kind of accept that our days are numbered. Um, not afraid of that. 
um, I've had a great life. Um, but I'm still, I've still got grandkids I want to see, you know, grow up married. Uh, so we, we try to protect ourselves as best we can. Paul has an AR-15. Most homeowners use bullets with hollow points, which stop when they hit a target, so that they won't keep on traveling and hit a bystander or a neighbor. But Paul's gun is loaded with solid points. Why'd you go for the solid rather than the hollow? Uh, well, normally I would uh, prefer a hollow point if I had to shoot a varmint outside, but uh, these people up the road here, they all wear uh, armor-plated uh, uh, vests with uh, metal metal plates in them too. And the penetrating power of a hollow point is much less than a solid point. So, <clears throat> I don't, <clears throat> I don't like the idea of having to be prepared for this, but I think we have to. Something did happen for the neighbors recently. It actually looks like Slate Ridge might get shut down. And do you know what did it? It wasn't the governor or the attorney general or the ATF or the state's natural resources board or the state police. It was the tiny town of Paulette. Their zoning case finally worked its way through the courts and, after years of delays, in March, a state superior court upheld the town's zoning laws and ruled against Daniel. The neighbors say the shooting has stopped, for the most part. But they still hear construction noise from time to time. They think he's building another two ranges. The judge ordered Daniel to dismantle the buildings at Slate Ridge and pay $100 for each day he hasn't fixed his zoning violations, which came to $46,600. In his ruling, he detailed how Daniel has refused to comply with the town since 2017. He wrote, quote, Mr. Bonnier's record of compliance has been horrendous. Daniel has appealed the ruling, of course. This could still drag on for a bit. And there's one thing that won't change. Even if the range gets shut down, even if the buildings get knocked down, Daniel will still own that land. And Paul, Michelle, and everyone else up on the hill? We're not moving, and we're not quitting. Yeah, I agree with that. So for now, at least, they're all still going to be neighbors. Mike Giglio. We'd also like to give a shout-out to the local press in Vermont, which has done a great job covering all this. VT Digger, Vermont Public Radio, and the Manchester Journal. I always lock the door Cause you never know for sure Who your neighbors really are Was suspicious I made my way outside In the California skies But I couldn't feel the sunny disposition Today's program was produced by Ari Saperstein and Diane Wu. It's actually Ari's last week as production fellow here at our show, our first and hopefully last all-remote production fellow, and he's done such a great job. Today's episode, a good example of that. The people who put together today's episode include Bim Matawunmi, Elna Baker, Ben Calhoun, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Dana Chivas, Damian Grafe, Seth Lynn, Mary Marge Locker, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Laura Sturczewski, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Chloe Weiner. Editorial assistance on today's show from Lisa Fu. 
Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman, senior editor David Kestenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Stephen Rex Brown of the New York Daily News for help with our story about the billionaire and the parking space. Thanks also to Chase Bauer, Otis Gray, Jesse King, Gene Fidel, Aaron Glantz, Elaine Stevens, Tom O'Connor of Fed Squared Consulting, Miriam Kleiman, and Ingrid Jonas. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there are videos, there are lists of favorite shows for your summer road trip listening, tons of other stuff there too. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he told me he could sum up any movie in nine words or fewer. I was like, okay, Big Lebowski, go. A rich guy, a mansion, uh, a car being towed. All right, it's stolen and crashed, then towed, but yeah, pretty good. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. <laughs> <laughs>